God is a storyteller. And like any good story, his story that he writes for us begins in the beginning. And in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was dark and it was formless and it was empty, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in that introductory passage, God reveals himself to be both creative and sovereign, to be artistic and at the same time completely in control. And from there, God begins to write down his story, the story of all that exists on the blank pages of time and space. And he authors everything that we know and everything that we are. And like a master storyteller, early on in the story, God skillfully uses the events and the themes and the places and even the people who appear to drop hints to drop whispers, to drop shadows, that something bigger and something better is coming. And that something bigger and that something better that echoes all throughout the Old Testament, that is pointed to all throughout Scripture, is why we're here this morning. It's why we come together every single Sunday. It's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ that brought hope into a hopeless world, that brought the opportunity for reconciliation to people who had separated themselves from their God and from their Creator. And when we look at Scripture in particular, everything that comes before the resurrection, everything in the Old Testament and early on in the Gospels is designed to point our attention directly to the cross and the empty tomb. Everything in the New Testament and beyond is designed to point us backwards to the cross and to the, recon- to the resurrection of Christ because that's the climax of the story that God is writing. That's the centerpiece of all that God is doing. Before the foundations of the earth, He not only knew that we would fall, He not only knew that we would separate ourselves from Him, but He had a plan on how He was going to redeem and restore us, and that was through Christ. Just like every other story in the Old Testament are designed to point us towards Christ and His crucifixion and resurrection, Jonah's story is no different. The story of Jonah is a very small story in Scripture. In fact, in my Bible, it's two pages out of about a thousand of text. And so it can be easy to think of the story of Jonah as something that's small and something that's insignificant and maybe something that we just tell children when they're small and then we move on past it. But the reality is that Jonah is a very small story that has an incredibly crucial impact on the rest of the story that we see in Scripture. Now, if you haven't been with us for the past several weeks, we've been looking through the book of Jonah. And to summarize what we've talked about, to give you an idea of what the story of Jonah is talking about, you have this guy who's a prophet. And Jonah's living in Israel and he's got a really good situation going. And then God calls him to leave that comfortable situation and go to a place called Nineveh and start preaching to the city. But Jonah doesn't want to do that. So Jonah hops on a boat and heads towards a place called Tarshish in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh with hopes that he can outrun the presence of God. But he finds out he can't. And as he's on a boat, God sends a storm. And these sailors that are on the boat with Jonah are, are horrified and they're scared and they're praying to all their gods, but Jonah knows what's going on. And he says, this is happening because of me, so if you just throw me overboard, this will be okay and God will spare you. 
And so reluctantly, the sailors throw Jonah overboard, and sure enough, the storm stops, and those sailors begin to worship Jonah's God because they see his power, but also his mercy. As Jonah's in the water, he's falling towards his death, and we see God send a fish that swallows Jonah up, and he lives there for a few days, and it sounds very unpleasant. And after the end of those few days, when Jonah has some time to think and some time to pray, the fish spits Jonah back on shore, and realizing what probably needs to happen, Jonah gets up, and he walks to Nineveh. And he goes into Nineveh, and he starts proclaiming the message that God gives him. He says, just in 40 days, God is going to destroy this city. And the people hear Jonah's words and they believe what God was telling them and they're overcome with grief and certainly with fear. And every one of them, from the greatest to the least, from the king to the peasant, begins to repent and to fast and to pray in hopes that God would find mercy in his heart for them. And he does. And an entire city is spared because of the work of a reluctant, rebellious prophet. But Jonah's story, just like every other story in the Old Testament, isn't meant to stand alone. But it's meant to point us towards something better. In fact, someone better. And so this morning, we're going to leave Jonah from his book, but still focusing on his story. And we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. As Jesus shows us how Jonah's story points us to his own. And how a rebellious prophet and repentant pagans in a foreign city were signs of a better hope to come. And so our text this morning is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. It says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. May God add His blessing and His favor to the reading of His Word. Thanks be to God for His Word. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You that before the foundations of the earth, You had a plan to save it. That before I drew my first breath, God, You knew me and You knew my shortcomings and my weaknesses and You loved me anyway. And at the climax of that story, God, in the fullness of time, Christ came into the world to not only live, but to die. But to not only die, but to be raised again to new life as a promise for us that all who believe and trust in Christ and repent of our sins, that that, that resurrection is a promise for us as well. And so as we look this morning at a story of people who missed it, Father, I pray that we wouldn't be able to leave here today missing the beauty of what you've done for us in Christ. So prepare our hearts and renew our minds. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. One of the amazing things about Scripture is that Scripture is full of the stories of people. And the people in Scripture, just like us, just like all people who live, they have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. 
And so we can sometimes relate really well to certain people who lived and certain stories that we see inside of Scripture because we connect to those things. Sometimes it's strengths that we see in some of the biblical people and we, we identify with the strengths that certain people have and so we, we resonate with those stories. Sometimes it's the weaknesses and we see ourselves in the weaknesses of some of the people who lived in Scripture and we find some sort of camaraderie but also a little bit of humility and sometimes even fear when we find those things out. For me, I've always resonated well with Gideon. Gideon was a judge in the book of Judges, but he was very reluctant and had a lot of issues with doubt. And so one of the things that marks Gideon's story is the fact that he constantly needed God to show him something more. And so when God was calling Gideon to go and to do that work, Gideon says, that sounds good, but I don't know if, if I really believe this is what I'm supposed to do. And so here's what's going to happen. Tonight, I'm going to go to bed. I'll put this cloth on the floor and when I wake up, if you want me to do this, then make the cloth wet and the ground dry. So Gideon goes to sleep, and he wakes up, and sure enough, the cloth is wet and the ground is dry. But there are plenty of factors that could have contributed to that, and Gideon worked all this out in his mind. And so it could have been that just something else got the cloth wet, and so he needed something a little more. And so that night he went to bed and he says, God, if, if this is really what you're calling me to do, if this is really your word, then this time leave the cloth dry and make the ground wet. Which seems like a bad thing to ask for, because I feel like it'd be unpleasant to wake up and step onto wet ground, but that's what Gideon wanted, and that's what happened. And so he needed God to give him some sort of affirmation. And for me, that's been a constant theme of my life, that I'm constantly finding myself asking God, I want to believe, I want to have this faith, I just need something more. And maybe you find yourself in that same place. And I would imagine that all of us, in the midst of our work to, to grow in Christ and to seek after God, we've had some time where we've been overwhelmed with something that's caused us to ask God for a sign or for something more or some type of validation. Sometimes we ask God out of doubt. We want to know, God, just show yourself to me. I'm, I'm uncertain. I don't know what to do. I'm confused. I don't even know if you're there. I don't even know if you hear me. And so, God, please just give me something more concrete to grab a hold of, something that I can see, something that I can realize, something that I can hold in my hand so that I can know that you're there and that you're with me. Sometimes it's out of fear where we know that maybe God is calling us to do something, but we're overcome by fear and uncertainty because we, we want to. We say, God, I want to take this step of faith, but I'm worried that if I do, I'm just going to walk off a cliff and there won't be anything there to catch me. And so, God, I'm, I'm scared and I'm worried about this and I need you to give me some kind of affirmation. Sometimes our questions come out of anger. Sometimes something happens in our lives or our circumstances find themselves in a way that we don't understand and that not only make us sad and not only break our hearts, but sometimes make us angry. And so we look to God and we say, God, why would you let this happen? How is this part of your plan? Why is this going on? If this is what you want, then fine, but just show me something that I can hold on to. And like Habakkuk, we come to God and say, I don't know what this means and have you, have you left? Are you not here? Do you not care about me? Do you not love me? What is going on? But then sometimes questions can come out of pure skepticism. Where people can shake their fist at the sky and say, if you really are God, 
if you're really there, much like one of the thieves on the cross who looked at Jesus, he said, if you really are the Son of God, which he clearly didn't believe, then just get yourself off of this cross and take us with you. It's that heart condition. It's that attitude that these scribes and Pharisees find themselves in here in Matthew chapter 12. And this is a relationship that Jesus has had with some of these religious leaders all through his ministry. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But it's the same kind of trap that they've tried to set for Jesus over and over again. They want to see Jesus fail. They want to see Jesus fall. They want to have some kind of evidence where they can look at Jesus and say, See, you're not who you say that you are. And so they would try to trap Jesus with questions about the law or try to find his disciples doing things that they shouldn't be doing and they would try to pin Jesus down and now this is no different. Because their question may sound respectful, but it's certainly not. They come to Jesus saying, we want to see a sign from you. If you really think you are who you say you are, then show us something. And what we want as we see this happen, and we know what the religious leaders have tried to do to Jesus through his whole ministry, we want Jesus to look at them when they ask this ridiculous question and say, haven't you been paying attention? Haven't you been watching what I've been doing? Haven't you been listening to the words that I said? Haven't you heard about the time when I restored someone from their sickness with leprosy? Where were you when I raised the centurion's daughter back to life? When I calmed the storm? Haven't you heard about me calming the storm and feeding so many people? What about the times when I cast out demons and caused someone who couldn't walk to walk again? Where were you when all of those things were going on? But he doesn't. Because he doesn't have to. Because Jesus knows their hearts. He knows where this question is coming from. And so he responds to their question by saying this. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And now I read that passage and I get really worried. Because like I've already told you, I go through seasons of, of doubt and, and asking God to, to show me something more. And I think about Gideon. And so we can read that passage and say, Whoa, what about the times... When I doubted, what about the times when I've had those prayers asking God just to give me a little something more in the times when my faith was weak? Am I part of that adulterous and wicked generation? But remember, all through Jesus's ministry, we see Jesus finding the people who are hungry and miraculously giving them something to eat. The people who were blind and miraculously giving them back their sight. The people who had leprosy and causing them to be healed and to be clean and welcoming them back into society. Even down to showing his ultimate power by raising people from the dead. And so when the hungry and when the hurting and when the needy and the lost and the broken and even the angry and the doubters came to Jesus, he was willing to show them his grace and his mercy and his power and to reveal to them at least in part who he was. And we have a God who welcomes us in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our times of need and anguish. But that's not who these men were. These weren't men coming to Jesus desperately seeking to know Him more or wanting to know God more. These were men who came to Jesus wanting to see Him fail and wanting to see Him fall. And yet, even in the midst of their animosity, Jesus tells them that he'll give them a sign. 
says, you're an evil and an adulterous and wicked generation for wanting this, but I will give you a sign. I'll only give you one, but it's the only one that you'll need. And he says this. He says, no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus, again, as not only the Son of God, but a teacher, knows well the story of Jonah. And so he says, listen, when you see the sign of Jonah coming, then you know that I am who I said I am. And Jesus is making this comparison to Jonah going inside the belly of the fish. And as we've seen over the past several weeks, from Jonah 1 to Jonah 2, we watch Jonah march further and further into death. Saying that Jonah went down to Tarshish, heading towards death. That Jonah was thrown overboard. And even in Jonah's psalm in chapter 2, Jonah realized that he had fallen down to death's doorstep. And so Jesus is making a comparison here between Jonah's death and his own. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is that you'll know who I am when I'm dead. Now the problem with this is that this doesn't seem like a very good sign. Because at this point, they know who Jesus is claiming to be. Jesus is very clearly setting Himself up to be the Messiah that was promised all throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. That He was claiming to be the One who had come from God to save God's people. And now people were starting to go around saying that not only was Jesus the Messiah, but they were making these confessions like Peter did that said that you are the Christ, you're the Son of God. And the problem is, the Messiahs can't die. A lot of them had. A lot of people had tried to come up and say that they were Messiahs, and they were killed, or they were put to death, or they died. And when they died, their movement usually ended with them. Because no Messiah, no movement. But to even go one step further, with Jesus being the Son of God, God can't possibly die. God can't possibly go into the ground. And so it seems like if Jesus were to die, it would undo everything that he claimed to be. But Jesus knew that Jonah's story didn't end in the fish. And he also knew that his story wouldn't end in the grave. And while the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't grasp it, Jesus knew. He knew that this sign of Jonah wouldn't be the end, but it would be the beginning of something amazing. Something so amazing that even if he had told the scribes and Pharisees what was going to happen, their hard hearts and their stubborn minds wouldn't be able to believe it. Because Jesus knew that after three days in the belly of the fish, that Jonah was spit back up on dry ground. And he got up on the ground with a mission to accomplish. And last week we looked at that mission and how that all worked itself out because Jonah did get up and he went straight into Nineveh after God gave him this incredibly awesome second chance. Even though Jonah had no business doing what God was calling him to do because of his rebellion and his hard heart, God allowed him to go anyway and sent him into Nineveh and Jonah walks into the city and over the course of a day he cries out, in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh will be destroyed, will be completely wiped out. But as we saw last week, in an amazing picture of humility and awareness, the people of Nineveh believed the message that God sent to them. 
And as we've already said, every one of them, from the greatest to the least, repented. From the king to the lowliest pauper. In fact, the king made an issue, made an order, that everyone in the kingdom, including the animals, would cover themselves in sackcloth and would fast out of a hope and out of a prayer that God would be merciful to them. And we see this act of God's mercy as Jonah chapter 3 says that God relented from the disaster that He was going to do to them. Jonah was the worst. And his story's not over yet. We're going to talk about chapter 4 next week. And it might seem like, if you don't know the story, that we're on a trajectory to Jonah's redemption. Because he had this, this rebellious period, but now he's in Nineveh. And so now he's probably a really good dude. But turns out, nope. Jonah's still the absolute worst. And we're going to get to watch that unfold as Jonah pitches one of the largest fits that we see inside of Scripture. And so even being one of just the most unlikable people in all of Scripture, God used him to bring salvation to an entire city. Jonah went inside the gates of Nineveh preaching a message that seemed like it had no hope and his heart was hard with no love for the people inside of it and yet still the people repented and when they did, God had mercy on them. And Jesus points out the magnitude of their salvation because they weren't just spared from that momentary destruction. But Jesus says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. What Jonah brought was not temporary salvation, but an eternal salvation. So Jesus says that the judgment seat of God, those people from Nineveh, they're going to be there because of their repentance and because they believed the sermon that Jonah was preaching. And so despite his flaws, Despite his rebellion, despite his weaknesses, and even despite his heart condition, Jonah played a crucial role in the eternal salvation of thousands of foreign, pagan, sinful people. And now, so many years later, his story is playing a crucial role in God bringing salvation to the world. Because Jesus says they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And it really is a beautiful statement. I love the better than statements in Scripture. As the writer of Hebrews and others talk about how Jesus is the better Moses and the better Melchizedek and that Jesus is the more perfect tabernacle and all of these incredible things that the New Testament says about Jesus and how He completed and fulfilled everything that God had set up for Him to do. But while this language is incredibly beautiful, talking about Jesus being the better Jonah to bring a better salvation, this is also a statement filled with indictment. Because what Jesus is saying here is that these pagan foreigners who had never heard the name of God before probably heard the preaching of a rebellious and hateful prophet and they turned to repent. But now these scribes and these Pharisees, these religious leaders are staring face to face with the Son of God, with God incarnate, with the Messiah that they've been waiting for their entire lives. And instead of seeing His goodness and seeing His grace and running to His mercy, they conspired to kill him. And so while Jesus is also showing us the similarities between his story and Jonah, there's also a very stark contrast. Because Jonah was a prophet who was, who was respected and accepted by the people that he hated. 
And Jesus is a Savior rejected by the ones that He loved. And so these men would go, and as the story finds its way out, these religious leaders began to meet together and talk about what they would do about Jesus, and they conspired to have Him killed. They had Him betrayed by one of His disciples. They put Him on a mock trial in front of all the people and saw with that the people turn their backs on Christ and yell, crucify Him. And they had Him beaten and mocked and scorned and all the things that we remembered on Good Friday and then put Him on the cross in a place reserved for criminals. And they killed Jesus. And on that Friday, as we saw this past Friday, a couple men took the body of Jesus and laid Him inside a tomb. And so even when all this had happened, they still couldn't see it. These religious leaders, they just thought that they had won. Because when you put somebody in a tomb, they were smart enough to know that people didn't come back. And so this nuisance of Jesus that they had been battling with for so long now was finally gone. And they could get back to life as usual. And they missed it. The salvation that God had planned before the foundation of the earth. The climax of God's story that He'd written before one plant grew on the face of the world. Had come into their world. And stood directly before Him. They had spoken to Him. And they missed it. Something greater than Jonah was here. And they missed it. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. But just because they missed it doesn't mean that we have to. We get the benefit of looking back now, seeing the story in, in full, at least how it's been written so far. And we can look at the Old Testament and see all of those whispers and all of those hints and all of those shadows screaming to us that something better is coming. We can see the tabernacle and the priests and all of the prophets and all the people inside of Scripture. We see Jonah and we see all the things that God had put into place so that we could know that something better was coming. And now we can look at the New Testament. And we can look at Matthew chapter 12 and realize that something better is here. That something better has come. That Jesus stepped into the world. That God became one of us for us to be the perfect Word of God. Because we're told that long ago God spoke through the law and the prophets, but now He speaks to us in His Son. He spoke to us in the most intimate and perfect and awesome way that He could by putting on flesh and blood and meeting with us where we were. The perfect tabernacle that met with His people in a way they could understand, in a way that they could touch, a way that they could know. As Philip said, the great high priest who gives us access to God, where we can, through Christ, come boldly before the throne of grace. We saw that beautiful image on Friday when after Jesus breathed His last breath, the veil in the temple that kept everyone out of the presence of God was torn from the top to bottom because we no longer need a high priest because Jesus is our high priest that gives us full, unadulterated access to God. And then He offers Himself as the perfect sacrifice as we're going to remember as we take communion in just a minute, that His body was broken for us and that He bled for us and that He breathed His last for us and He took on the punishment for our sin on Himself. The better Jonah was cast down to death's door 
sealed in a tomb in a place where no one comes back from. Only his wasn't out of rebellion like Jonah's, but out of submission. Much like Jonah, on the third day, everything changed. But on the third day for Jesus, Jesus wasn't mercifully spit out of the tomb, but Jesus, through the power of God and the power of resurrection, broke loose from the chains of death, and he opened the door of life to all who would believe. And while Jonah brought salvation to one city, Jesus came in to bring salvation to all nations. This was the sign of Jonah that Jesus promised, not just that he would die, but he would conquer death and live again. And this is the only sign that we need. We find in the gospel story, in the Easter story, that the same God who reached out of Israel to save pagan sailors and peasants and kings has now reached down to us through the death and resurrection of Christ. And he's offered us in full his love, his mercy, his salvation and life. And that's why we call it good news. That's why we celebrate the resurrection of Christ because it shows to us the truth of Scripture that God so loved the world that He gave His Son and that whoever believes in Him won't perish but will have everlasting life. The truth of Scripture that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we're dead in our sins and trespasses but God being rich in mercy with an unfathomable love that He's lavished on us can make us alive again through Christ. And so we stare at the same message that the scribes and Pharisees stared at. And much like the scribes and the Pharisees, we're going to respond to it. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith or your trust in Christ, then that's the gospel. That's the good news. That we've all fallen short. That as we talked about in our confession of sin, that each and every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, of the goodness of God, of the mercy of God. And there's nothing that we can do about it. But because God loved us so much, Christ came to do for us what we couldn't do on our own. And that when we trust in Jesus, when we believe that He is who He says He is and that He did what He said He did and we repent of our sins, that we become new. We be made whole, that the old is past and that the new has come. And much like the people of Nineveh, our salvation is not just temporary, but it's eternal. And so if you've never trusted in Christ for salvation before, you've never been through the waters of baptism, then I would encourage you after the service, come and talk with me or talk with Pastor Adam about what it means to trust in Christ for salvation and how beautiful a picture of salvation that act of baptism is. If you're here and you are a follower of Christ, as you hear the story that maybe you've heard hundreds if not thousands of times before, remember that the gospel is not a one-time message. That we don't hear the truth of Christ's death and resurrection and then find that beneficial for one-time salvation and then walk away. But this story is good news to us every single day because it reminds us that God's mercies, like Lamentation says, are new every single morning. And that even when we fall short, even when we find ourselves looking more like Jonah than like Jesus, that there's still grace, that there's still mercy, there's still hope, that we still have this promise of eternity. But we also have to remember the fact that we are called to go out and to do the work that Jesus has laid out for us to do. Because we're still waiting for the final part of God's story that takes place in the book of Revelation when it says that Jesus will come again and make all things right and all things new. 
Take away all the pain of sin and death and shame and take all the the horrible and broken things in the world and put them away. And it's our job, much like it was the job of the people in the Old Testament, to set the stage for that. To be the hints and the whispers and the shadows of something better to come. To live as people who have been redeemed and restored and who have a relationship with God and to go out and to proclaim that message of the Gospel everywhere that we go. To go out and to do what James calls us to do, to care for the widows and the orphans, for those who are broken and in need, to feed the hungry and go and visit the sick and the afflicted and to do the work that Christ has called us to do so that in everything that we do and in everything that we say, God will speak to us and scream through us that something better is coming. This is the message that Christ has given us. This is the sign of Jonah. This is the hope that we have in Christ. Let's hear it this morning and respond to it as we should, as life-changing, eternity-altering good news.